Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, changemakers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. Welcome to Impact the World. My guest today is Paria Hasori, who is a writer, an advocate, a parent, and she came onto the show to speak with me about her new book, which just came out. It's called Found in Transition, A Mother's Evolution During Her Child's Gender Change. This is a wonderful show for so many reasons, and I was grateful that Paria came on to talk to us. I hope you enjoy, and you can find Paria and her work at pariahasori.com, and we will put all of the links in the show notes. Enjoy the show. So welcome to this show, and Paria, thank you so much for, for not only coming onto this show, but I got really excited when Kim Corbin at New World Library reached out to me and said, oh, Lee, there's someone you've got to have on the show because she has written not only an amazing book, and it is a beautifully written memoir, um, but also just the topic of the book is, is so needed. And so thank you for being here to talk to us about your book, Found in Transition. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk to you and hopefully reach your audience. So... Well, if you don't mind, I thought I would just begin by, um, you know, the book starts in a really compelling way. And I thought if you, it's okay with you, I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs. And the, the chapter heading is Thanksgiving 2017, Iron. Mom, I left something on my bed for you to iron, my 14-year-old says when he sees me come downstairs. The hair on the back of my neck rises. My heart starts galloping in my chest but I reply with the most casual, nonchalant, okay, I can muster. It is Thanksgiving day. We're going to leave for my mum's in just a couple of hours. I hate ironing. I avoid buying clothes that are difficult to iron. And when my husband occasionally asks me to iron something for him while he jumps in the shower, I get irritated every time. Yet, within half an hour of my son's request, I find myself back upstairs and ironing his dress without saying a word, while trying to calm the panicky thoughts in my head. Never in any of my visions of myself as a mother had I imagined a scene like, like this, yet here I am. We're waiting for an appointment with my child's third therapist in six months, which have probably been the hardest six months of my life. It's been difficult to shut down my racing mind for even one minute. I wish, I want, I fear, and what if statements have taken over my brain and will not give it a moment of respite. As the iron goes back and forth over the maroon H&M dress my son must have bought at the mall on his own, I find myself in a trance, praying to a God that my agnostic self has never really believed in. I am bargaining and pleading and negotiating with the universe. Dear God or universe, if this is true, if he is a girl, why weren't there any signs? Why didn't he ever want to be a princess or play with dolls or grow his hair or show an interest in baking or give any single sign that he might be a girl? Dear universe, please let him be safe. What if he gets beaten up or bullied? What if he hurts himself? 
please let no one hurt him. Please let me not be scared every time I got a phone call from a number I don't recognize. Dear God, what if he really is a trans girl? When and how do I say goodbye to the child I thought I knew and accept the new one? Wow. You know, just, and, 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 and that's just the very opening of the book. And yeah, I am. Um, you immediately take us in. Yeah. You've had quite a journey. And I think this is something that we as a world are beginning to come to understand. And I think that's what this book does so beautifully. And the subline for the book is a mother's evolution during her child's gender change. So on the eve of this coming out, how are you doing? How are you feeling about, about what you have put here as a blueprint for, for others? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of mixed emotions. Uh, just hearing you read that, um, I was back in that exact same moment. I mean, that that day and that ironing is singed in my memory, um, unlike any other moment in, in my life. Um, and I find myself back there um, anytime I hear about it, even though I've Obviously, we're in a much better place and and moved on. Um, I think it's really difficult when you're writing about your family and particularly you're writing about your child because on the one hand, you want to protect your child and you're putting your child's story out there. On the other hand, I knew that the time was now to really show. Uh, I, I just since then talked to so many other mothers and parents in, in my position um, who are grappling with the same thing. And I really wanted to write a story that showed that you can go from absolute shock and, and denial and, and grief to um, not just acceptance, but really thriving as a family. Um, and you, so you know, so I just, I have a lot of mixed emotions. I'm not sure how, how it will be received. Um, I'm sure there will be criticism as well as praise. I'm not sure how much impact it will have and how much that will affect the privacy of my family. Obviously, you know, we're chosen to go public with this. And, um, and my daughter is very open and, and public as well. But um, you know, there may come a time in her life when she doesn't want to be so out, out there. And once you put this out there, it's it's out there, even if later on she decides that she wants to, uh, you know, step back a little bit. Um, so I have a lot of mixed emotions. Um, and it's also hard for me to, you know, part of the decision making in writing the book was, um, and I addressed it very shortly after those paragraphs of calling her my son versus my daughter and how I handled the pronouns and the language. And, and it's hard for me to hear her referred to as my son, even though I start the book that way, you know, now I'm at a place where um, I know it's hard for her to hear that. And it's, it's hard for me to hear that you know, now too. So I have a whole lot of emotions yeah. going on, but I, overall I, I am excited. I think I believe that if this book makes a difference for one person, it's going to do what it needed to do. Um, and potentially it could make a difference for so many, so many people. So. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me, like even just for me, the education that I have received from what I have been reading is big. Like, so, so I can't, I can only imagine what it's going to do for the other people who need it, want it, or just come across it, or for, for even someone who perhaps won't read uh, the book, but perhaps watches an interview like this with you or another interview you do or something that someone else is doing. You know, something that hit me, you mentioned how Ava, your daughter's name, um, you, you mentioned that you were going to only refer to Ava as Ava in the book, even if referring to, um, to when Ava is still identified as male. And you said something I didn't know, which is in the trans community, they call it your dead name, right. uh, the name that you had before you transitioned. And that was educational to me. Right. Yeah, so they, uh, they call it your dead name. And I've always had a hard time with that <laughs> uh, because, you know, on the one hand, um, you're, you're told that this is the same child you've always had. Um, and it's just that their gender is not what you thought it was. Um, but, but then at this, so, you know, your child hasn't died and you don't have a new child. You've had the same child all along. And then on the other hand, you're using the terminology dead name. Um, and, and most trans people really don't want their dead name mentioned or, or written anywhere or, or talked about. Um, that's actually another whole big area of uh, controversy. Um, and so, you know, we had, I, I had to ask her, was it okay to use it? Did she want me to use a different name? Did she want me to even use a different first name instead of Ava, which is her actual legal first name now? And, and she said she wanted them, that she was okay with all of it. And that she wanted um, her dead name, which I refer to as her birth name, <laughs> um, you know, in there. But uh, yeah, so I call it the name I gave her at birth, but uh, and her name now is her name. So, and th there's a lot around this whole, uh, you know, some sometimes what you call somebody's current legal name has changed a lot too. It used to be, you know, it's gone from preferred name to asserted name to legal name to just, you know, now really the latest is this is the person's name. Do not, don't put all these qualifiers. This is their name. <laughs> so Ava is her name. And her, the prior name was her dead name, which I prefer to refer to as the name I gave her at birth. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to learn and it, it, yes. it changes a lot. But yeah. I think, and so part of my fear in writing this was that I'm sure I've written things that maybe a trans person would read and not appreciate. But I didn't want the fear of writing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing to make me not write at all. Mm. Because I think it's more important to have this conversation and I get some things wrong than to not have this conversation at all. Um, so true. So my husband is African-American. And, you know, one of the things I said to him a while back was I said, you know, I'm, I'm, always, con I'm always aware being someone who has white privilege and, you know, has a lot to learn around that, like of saying the wrong thing. And as he said, he said, it's better you just have the conversation and, and get some things wrong. And, I, and, I, and I, I see that too with my parents' generation or other people I have. Whenever, the, whenever we're talking about areas that we don't know enough about or are very new to us, there is that fear of getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing. But I agree with you. I, I think if we don't have these conversations, how are we going to, 
how are we going to learn and how are we going to introduce into the narrative um, everybody and, and, every, and everything that exists on the planet, especially things that previously have had to be or have been kept in the shadows. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the shadows, it, one of the things that struck me was when you said there were no signs at all in childhood um, that Ava identified as, as female. So that what was Ava's childhood like? in terms of what you what you saw and observed? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought she had a very typical boy childhood. Uh, she never asked to play with dolls or wear a dress. Of course, these are all just made up gender things, you know. Of course, anyway. no, I, I, I get <laughs> but, that too. You know, but when you have it, you know, she never, part of why I wanted to write uh, the book was that all of my prior trans education was from the media. And most of it was seeing stories of boys who are three or four and saying, you know, I'm a girl and want to wear a dress. And, and because she didn't have any of that, um, and she came out to us when she was 13, I thought it, you can't possibly be trans. You would have had signs when you were three or four, or, you know, but she, she never complained about anything that we tried to put on her clothing wise. She never asked to play with different toys. She never asked to be, in a particular sport or not being a particular sport. She never said I'm in the wrong body, you know, or I don't like my penis or, you know, mm. none of these things that I saw over and over in the media. The only thing really about her, she was never sporty. So uh, she was in soccer for a couple seasons. And then she said, I don't want to do it anymore. We said, okay. She was in Taekwondo for one season. She didn't like it. And we said, okay. She played tennis for a little while. Then she quit. Um, she always liked uh, like trains and cars were always her thing though. She loved trains and cars. Um, and she, loved Legos and Minecraft. And so we just thought, okay, we just have a non-sporty Legos, Minecraft kind of thing. child. She would spend hours and hours on the most intricate Lego, <laughs> you know, things. So that was a child we had. So the only really thing that was a little off about her in her childhood was that she had a hard time making friends and she was often depressed and nobody could figure out why she was depressed. And I don't, and I, you know, talking to her and um, I don't think she could figure out why she was depressed or why she couldn't really make friends, why she didn't feel comfortable. And, and she herself will say that she, until 12, 13, she never thought maybe I'm a girl or maybe that's the, the answer. She just knew that she just had a hard time making friends and she didn't really know why. So she would immerse herself in Legos or in, you know, reading or, you know, she taught herself Japanese or, you know, she would immerse herself in things to occupy her time uh, because she was for the most part fairly lonely. She had a few, few friends that she'd do things with, but she had a hard time connecting with people. Um, and so that was really the only thing, but there was never to us an indication that the difficulty with the connection may be because of an underlying gender issue. Mm. Um, and I don't even know if that was it or not, but I have to think it must've been, it. it must've been an underlying gender issue that she didn't even, you know, if you, you, for some kids, it's very clear you, there, 
their sense of gender at three or four or five is so strong. But for other kids, it's really not so clear. And so if you're raised as a boy and told you're a boy and you have an older brother who you love, you don't question your, you just don't think to question what the entire world is telling you, 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 know, you are. And I think that's, you know, probably was what the case was for her. Yeah, and I also think we're all being forced into those gender boxes and like societal ideas in that in, in those formative years. And it's probably it takes time, doesn't it, to to figure out what you're aligned with, what you what you're pushing against. But it, it's amazing that at 13, um, Ava Ava was able to be having that epiphany and and communicate that to you. So how how did she communicate it to you? And 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 yeah, what was that process like for all of you? Yeah, well, she she first told a teacher in school, um, which caused the school to call us while we, right. while her dad and I were away in Thailand. Right. So her, you know, we we never take a vacation, but on the one time that we, that we <laughs> took a vacation and went to Thailand for a yoga retreat, we got a call from school because she, you know chose that time to come out to her teacher <laughs> and the teacher told us. Um, so then we, we came back to LA and we came, when we came back to LA, we sat down and we talked and, and she just said, you know, I've been, I've been th- uh, thinking about this for the last six months. And, you know, at first I didn't tell you guys um, anything cause I just wasn't sure. But um, then I just, I just knew something wasn't right with my body. And it really started once her body started going through puberty, which is actually now I know about um, how about half of uh, trans people uh, present um, is uh, that once their body starts going through puberty is when the mismatch sort of happens Mm -hmm. for them. And so, um, and then, so once her body started going through puberty, it didn't feel right. And so she started just Googling, you know, body not feeling right when you're going through puberty um, and seeing different YouTube videos. And, and so took this six months time period to do all this research and be, sh- be sure, you know, in her mind before she came out um, to tell, uh, tell us about it. So it was interesting because one of the uh, therapists uh, actually told us that for a lot of trans people, they have this uh, process uh, where they almost have a coming in period where they do all this research and read and are sure, you know, want to make sure they're sure. And then they come out. So they sort of come in first and they, you know, you'll find them spending hours and hours in their bedrooms on the computer and figuring it all out before they come out to, you know, a friend or parents. And so by the time she, so when she sat down to tell us, she basically gave us a dissertation on being trans and Mm -hmm. and why she was trans. And for me, it was very, uh, it was just so hard to accept because I was sitting and looking at what looked like 100% a teenage boy, Mm -hmm. you know, telling and telling me that she's a girl. Um, and I had just never thought that or seen her that way, or, you know, just, it was, it was, so for me, it led to complete, uh, like anger and shutdown, which is one of my greatest regrets rather than actually listening to her. I just shut down. 
my husband did much better than I did. He didn't right. have an immediate shutdown, right. but I had an immediate uh, shutdown and really I just got angry because I, I, I felt um, like my own, so much of my identity was being a mother and I'm also a pediatrician. So, you know, it was like, it sort of became all about me, like on my identity as a, and validity as a pediatrician and mother is being questioned if I could not know something so fundamental about my own child. Hmm. Wow. And thank you for sharing that. And it's, 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 it's interesting. You know, I had, uh, cause I, I came out as gay when I was 16 to my friends, my first few friends, and then my mom, and then a, a very difficult coming out process with my family, like not easy at all and went on for many years. And um, it's funny, there's some real parallels. So, you know, I was coming out as gay, but, you know, I remember the going in period. My mom had a similar reaction to you and it, it stretched our relationship for a few years. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's fascinating some of the parallels because what I was, when I was talking to Stephen about this the other day, I was saying, you know, in a way, the way I look at... Um, now where we're at with transgender awareness and education and rights feels a little bit like where we were in the 80s with gay and lesbian and bisexual rights. It's almost like that was the education process that the world was going through, coming to terms with back then. And um, and I said, it feels to me like there's a, there's a similar parallel now that this is the next frontier of where there's a lot of learning involved for everybody. Like even for me as a, as a gay person, I'm like, what is that? You know, because there weren't many... Um, examples out there. So interesting. It's just interesting to hear some of the parallels. Um, I loved something that you that you wrote, which I just want to quickly read out this paragraph. While I was always accepting of trans people in principle, it seemed that I was not okay with my own child being trans. Was that all just because I was shocked and didn't see it coming? Because I thought that Ava was doing it out of depression, a desire for attention, and anxiety about her future? Or was there also an underlying thread of prejudice against trans people? I'd like to think it was all the former, but I can't be 100% certain. See, to me, the power of you writing that and writing this book and, and so many aspects about what I've read in the book, I think you just give voice to the shadow and the fear in society. And if you, as Ava's mother, who loves and adores Ava, can share with us some of your process and what you were going through, it helps, um, it helps take some of the shame away for all of the rest of us who are also going through all of the same things. That to me is the power of the book and, and the power of the writing and the sharing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, uh, you know, now looking back, I'm, I'm sure, I'm 100% sure a lot of it was because I had prejudice against trans people. <laughs> you know, I mean, as much as I like to think of myself as, you know, open-minded and liberal. And I had a lot of gay friends. So, you know, I'm an open liberal person, but, you know, trans, like gay was fine. Trans was not okay. Um, and I think, I really think um, that a big part of that is because up until just the last couple of years, trans rep representation in the media has was so terrible <laughs> uh, that you just couldn't help but have fear and dread and associate being trans with being a sex worker or you know just 
you know, I didn't have examples of successful, thriving trans adults in my life at, at all, um, not in person and, and not in the media either. Uh, so, and I, I don't know if you've watched uh, Disclosure uh, documentary that Laverne Cox recently did on No, that. not yet, but I know it's, it's supposed really to be amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's really incredible. And it's, and it's really all about that, about how, how we have been fed these images in the media of trans people um, that are so negative. And that's, that's all I knew when, when she came out. Um, you know, then after that, you know, is when I really started looking for examples of trans people who were living full lives, making big difference in the world. And now there's so many of them, you know, involved in not so many, but there's several involved in politics. And, um, and, and so part of writing this was, um, and part of why, you know, I have a public Instagram and I put pictures of our family on there is, I just want to show that we're a family like every other family um, and that having a trans child is no different than having any other child. Um, And that if you just look at a picture of my family, we're just a family, you know? Um, And so, and I do think that a lot that, that is changing in the next, it has started to change in the last couple of years and really will change a lot in the next five to 10 years, I'm sure, as you said, you know, just, just how our image of, you know, being gay has, has changed since, since the eighties. So. Yeah. And I also feel, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, and I've shared this with other gay friends that one of the things that we as gay people had to overcome and, you know, some of us did it with therapists and self-growth workshops or, you know, whatever, whatever our route was some and, and healing through relationships, it was just internalized shame. Because when you are um, told you aren't allowed or you aren't valid in society, you swallow all of that. So the the vital nature of your things like your Instagram page, where you know everybody on the planet being welcomed to be whoever they are, is what it takes for healthy, healthy, healthy individuals, healthy society. But you know it's interesting when you mention Laverne Cox's documentary. I always think it takes the strongest of the strong in any group that has been marginalized to be the pioneers that can push through and have that, you know, successful isn't quite the right word, but have that successful life despite the limitations that society are trying to put on them or remove remove rights from them. Um, And then the more people get to come up under that umbrella the more it just normalizes for everybody and people are like, oh, what's the, the, oh yeah, now I understand this. It's allowed, it's welcome. So it is really important. Um, speaking of your Instagram, one of my favorite things on your website um, was you have an article, you had an article on Huffington Post mm-hmm. and it was the headline that really got me. Um, It says, I battled my body for 30 years. Having a transgender daughter changed everything. And I I just, I love this because I relate to this. I was a fat kid, you know, growing up. And that was really hard for me because I had addictive eating issues. I wasn't just bigger for no reason. And um, you say, I stand in the dressing room, turning to the side, running my hand over the bulge of my tummy, 
dipping it in over the line caused by my underwear. I notice the way the dress clings just a little too much over my hips. At 45, there is no denying that I have my mom's body, but on this particular day, it is okay. Over the last few months, I've finally realized just how lucky I am to have her body, a body that matches my gender identity. And the reason I loved that, and it struck a chord with me, was for, I mean, I think everybody has issues with their physicality, but especially women or, um, you know, and a lot of gay men I know, there is this body dysmorphia, there is the value that's placed on the body and the objectification. So I kind of loved that as a, as a kind of, you know, sidebar, that that was something that you would come to around battling our own bodies, because I think everybody will identify with what you wrote there. Yeah. Well, so the, my book sort of has an A storyline, which is Ava's, and then there's a B storyline weaved throughout, which is really my story, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is why it's a mother's evolution. Yeah. Because this changed my life in, in, in so many ways. Um, and one of the things was really just accepting my, my own body. <laughs> you know, I, I, I fought you know, I've, I've fought this like hourglass, you know, hip <laughs> body uh, for so long. And then, I, you know, it just made me realize how ridiculous that was because she would give, she wants to have hips that are hourglass, you know, yeah. <laughs> she wants an hourglass body because people look at that as a woman's body. And I love being a woman. So why have I fought being shaped like a woman for so many years? I mean, it just, it just dawned on me just, it was just like, it's such an aha moment of, of what a ridiculous thing I've been fighting against for, for, for so many years. Um, and so I, I had really a lot of uh, personal growth during this time period. Um, I mean, I think this has been, this experience, nothing else could have caused this much personal growth, you know, yeah. but, for me in, in many aspects, not, I mean, the body is just one side little thing, but, but really just opening your eyes, your mind, realizing um, that you are capable, that your heart and mind are capable of expanding in ways that you never thought possible. Um, I mean, there's nothing better than that. You yeah, know? totally. It's funny. There's a funny thing to me that, you know, you say you were on a yoga retreat when, um, when Ava first, um, came out to a teacher. And there's something interesting about that because you and your husband had taken yourself off to this very high vibrational event. And, you know, I, I, I firm, I, I really understand how families shift and change whenever one family member goes and does something that's elevating. So, you know, if you go and heal something, even if your family members are completely opposed to it, it's going to have a knock-on effect on the rest of the family. So it's interesting to me that you went off to immerse yourself in, in this high vibration experience. And at the same time, it perhaps created an opening. Um, the timing for all of you seems kind of perfect that that's when, that's when the beginning of this awakening for all of you uh, happened and began. So I know that Ava has a, a brother and a sister, how has that been to watch their relationship as siblings and 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 the support and the yeah. you know how has that how has that all been to watch? You know, uh, that's been sort of the best part. Their relationship hasn't changed at all. Love it. And I think one of my 
one of sort of my thoughts was, you know, Ava and her older brother were always very, very close. And then my youngest daughter, I mean, they're all within five, five year, uh, five year time period. So they're you know, all relatively close, but Ava always admired um, my oldest Armon and wasn't really that close to Shada. Um, and I thought that that would change when she came out and it didn't change at all. Like Armon and Ava are still super close. I mean, Ava and Shada in the last maybe six months are getting closer, but if that didn't happen like right after Ava came out, I mean, really nothing changed. And I think um, both of them were like, I mean, my oldest, he was just like, okay. I mean, like really didn't really bat an eye. Um, my, uh, you know, Shada, when she first found out, like the day she found out, she went through a little bit of like wave of emotions for a few hours, maybe kind of yeah. thing. And then it was just back to normal. Um, and how old was she at that point? She was, uh, let's see, she's 13. So she was like 11. Yeah. Right. See, yeah. we're so and quick then, when we're kids. <laughs> we yeah, just so, move it through the body very well, quickly. Just, you know, it was just, I mean, her literal reaction was like, oh, so. I'm going to have a sister. Like her initial reaction was excitement within like 30 seconds. It was like, Oh, but I'm going to lose my brother. I mean, you saw excitement. Then you saw tears. Then you saw this not knowing what to do. And, and then she came over and hugged her. I mean, all this happened within like two minutes. I mean, you could just watch this wave of feelings, you know, concluding with like running over and hugging her. Um, and she, for a couple of days, she was a little just emotional, and then it was back to normal. Um, and their, their really, their relationship hasn't changed. And I just, I, I was so um, worried about, oh, like they've been such close brothers. Is that going to change? Or, I mean, it, none of it changed. Yeah. <laughs> and and I'm curious for Ava, like, how much of Ava's life is hijacked by having to be an ambassador for for who she is versus just living her life. You know, I'm, I'm curious, like when she's out and about with friends and like how, has, is that something she's been able to manage? Because um, I imagine there's a lot of, you know, even this whole conversation and this book, you know, in a, in a way, um, you know, it, there's a certain level of examination and education and conversation that, 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 that happens that I wonder how much she's hijacked by that in her life. Fair, a uh, fair amount. I mean, I yeah. think there are days where she wants to be, you know, advocate and out there and out and loud and proud. And there's days where she just wants to go get a burger. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, yeah, of course. Uh, I think you, you, so I think uh, it's just, and I think, at some point she'll, she'll figure out sort of the, the balance. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, she's been, she's been handling it pretty well. She, she, she likes to educate. She, you know, she likes to be out. She, she writes poetry about being trans and puts it out in the world. Um, she shares a lot of uh, trans sort of trans positive and educational posts on her Instagram. So she's definitely very out right now. 
but there are days where she just feels tired and she says, I just want to just be a girl, you know? Of course. Um, so, yeah. You know. And, and with friends and family, did you find that was a tricky transition for, for, for people in friends and family to, to, to adjust or, or. I think fortunately all our friends were, I mean, we were, we have been very, very lucky in many, uh, many, many aspects. Um, all our friends were completely understanding and accepting from, from day one. Uh, my, the, person I was most scared to tell was my mother who right away said, okay. I mean, I don't think she fully understood it, but she was like, okay, we'll figure it out. Don't worry. Um, my sisters were completely supportive. I mean, they they, like me didn't actually believe it. So they just said, okay, well, here's this things happening. We'll figure it out. You know, like we'll help you, you know, we're here for you. And, you know, everybody sort of, I think thought that this is probably a phase and it's going to end and okay, we'll just walk you through the phase, but nobody was like, no, this is terrible. Like, no, this can't be true. <laughs> you know? yeah. this sort of thing. So, so in though, you know, we've been lucky in many regards. One has been supportive, you know, friends and family, which is the most important thing anybody can ask for. Um, my husband and I were on the same page the entire time. I'm, I'm very active in a community of uh, families with trans kids. And there are many families where one parent um, is, is supportive and one parent is not. Yeah. And you need the, con- you know, if when you're talking about medical transition, you need the consent of both parents to do it for a minor. Um, so that holds up some families. Um, we've been lucky in that, uh, transition is a, a major financial burden for many people, and it hasn't been a financial burden for my family. I mean, so our our blessings are numerous, and I've been aware of that uh, the entire time. So, you know, there were a couple of friends who said things that hurt my feelings. Um, there was a some extended family that had a little bit of a harder time um, accepting it, but overall, we've had it we had a good experience we had a very good experience that we felt I I felt very privileged you know so and I love that because you you know you have those blessings that you can acknowledge it also leaves you enough energy and room to be putting out into the world the things that you're putting out into the world that perhaps someone else who's going through more of a crisis or a struggle with it wouldn't necessarily have the the energy the resources the time that you know because The other thing I wonder about with you, because you've been a pediatrician for, is it 21 years at CEDARS? Um, I've been a pediatrician since 2002, so 18, 18 years. years. Um, and I've been at CEDARS for about 12 years, yeah. So I'm imagining, too, in the, in the communities that you're, you know, you're in and working with, I, are you a, a good sounding board for people because you you have such medical background? I mean, that must be. And and how was that for you too to kind of learn more about this from a medical standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think from a medical in my I'm in a group of eight pediatricians, so I've become the go-to person for issues yeah. in my group, um, and and not just eight pediatricians, but we're sort of in this 150 physician group of all different specialists. So sometimes some of the internists will, you know, email me asking me for just a resource for an adult trans 
you know, patient uh, as well. So um, I've definitely, I've attended now since then uh, lots of medical conferences and learned all the ins and outs of medical uh, transition um, as, and really self-educated uh, on transgender healthcare. Um, and there's a possibility that I might start practicing uh, transgender health in the mm. next couple of years as well, um, feeling that out. Mm. So it's it's definitely impacted my life in, in many ways. It's a really a fascinating field. It's a um, it's a rewarding field. It's but it also has a lot of frustration. There's a lot of uh, insurance difficulty and hoops, and you know, just like just like anything else in medicine, maybe you know. Yeah. But, but um, and you know, in the current political uh, climate, uh, transgender healthcare rights are constantly be, being threatened to be taken away. Um, in the last few months, uh, a lot of this is happening. So, um, so I'm also, uh, you know, the National Center for Transgender Equality uh, does a lot of obviously fighting for for trans rights. And so, uh, you know, they, I think everybody should sign up for 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 their emails because um, they're you know a nonprofit. But you know, anytime there's a bill, you know, against trans people, they, you know, taking away trans rights, they notify you and you can, you know, sign it and, and try Great. to disperse it. Yeah. What is that website? Um, it's the National um, Center for Transgender Equality. I think their website is transequality.org, but I, I can, um, it's actually in the references in my, in the back. Perfect. Don't worry. We will, we will make sure that that's underneath. It's in the show notes as well. So that's great. Thank you for, thank you for passing that along. Yeah. Because the insanity of what mm-hmm. you've just described is going on needs to be countered with sanity and yeah. with people, yeah. uh, groups of people. So, you know, to kind of circle into the very reason that we are sat here today, it's because you wrote a book. And so I'm curious, you know, writing has been this, it's, it's one of the ways that you are bringing impact to the world. Um, and I'm curious, like, how long has writing been in you and with you? And, and at what point did you start writing publicly? Yeah, so the right. I think my writing journey is is sort of uh, pretty interesting. So I, I probably started writing in twenty twelve or twenty thirteen about. Um, so I am a child of uh, immigrants, and you know, um, my parents left uh, shortly after the Iran Iraq War, mm. uh, and it was very. Uh, I, I think for a lot of immigrant families, um, they tend to push their children towards professional tracks because they want sort of, you know, stability and, and certainty course, yeah. <laughs> and creativity is not stable or certain. <laughs> in <their laughs> minds. Um, so I never, I never really even thought that I may have a creative side to myself. Um, and then in 2012, I started running uh, and I decided I wanted to run a half marathon. It just picked a random goal. And when I, once I started running, um, during my runs, I would think of these things and I would come home and I would scribble them down. And so at the same time that I started, shortly after I started running, I started a blog called Mom on the Run Sanity, which is now, it's still up, but I no longer blog there. Um, and I would write about how 
how running was transforming my life. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of decided to run my first marathon and it chronicled my journey to marathon on that blog. Um, and then actually started writing for a women's running magazine. Um, and I would just write sort of more inspirational pieces about the transformative powers of running uh, that had really nothing to do with like actual speed or distance or, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, anything like that. So, uh, so somewhere, I don't know, maybe 2013, 2014, I started writing for women's running. Um, and then after that, I, it, it was like my running started, my writing started slowly getting away from being about running to being more and more about life. Um, and so I started, you know, wrote a couple little pieces, you know, here and there. Um, and I think, uh, and, and then once I, um, once this, once, once Ava came out, I actually stopped writing for, for a while. I just completely lost my ability to write. Um, and then slowly started writing again. Um, and, uh, and then decided that to go ahead and take a writing class at UCLA. So I took a night writing class at UCLA and started writing my memoir. And then it just happened very, very quickly. I mean, I took that UCLA class, I think, I believe September 2018 is when I took my, took a writing class and it was memoir one. And that was September, 2018. And by March of 2019, I had my first draft and, you know, I mean, it's, it's been such really a short fast. Yeah. It went very fast. Yeah. It went very fast. Uh, I signed with new world library uh, less than a year from when the book will actually come out. But by the time I signed with them, I mean, the book was, was done. It just needed a little bit of revision, but it happened. I wrote it really fast. I wanted to write it while it was, while it was fresh. Like even now reading some of it, I'm like, wow, who was that person in that? Yeah. Like that, yeah. I don't even, I'm so, you know, but I wanted to write, it while I was in the thick of it and while it, while it was fresh. Um, and I also during this whole time, I never saw a therapist for myself. So sitting down and writing it was almost like was, was therapeutic for yeah. me. Yeah. And it's funny too, that thing, when you do create things and then you see something from 10 years ago, it is a bit like, you're like, it's like looking at an old photo or something because you recognize it, but you don't recognize it. Yeah. I'm curious, what, what, what were the, you know, for anybody who's listening or watching who is wanting to write their own memoir or toying with the idea, are there any, is there a thing or any things that you have learned about memoir writing that kind of stuck with you or that like were door openers or, or keys to getting your story out and getting it down on the page? Well, I think during her, uh, during uh, the you know, the time when she came out, I did a lot of journaling, which I, I have been a, I, I'm not a journaler in general. Like when I was 12, I had diaries. Um, and yeah. then between 12 and 40s, I maybe had two journals full, you know, of like every few months writing an entry. But during, uh, I did a lot of journaling while, uh, while after she came out, while this was going on. And so that journaling really helped because I could see what I was, you know, what I was, what I was feeling and what was happening and the date when things happened, you know, I already had that. So I think anybody who's 
if, if anybody who wants to write memoir, if they've been keeping a journal, then that's obviously very helpful. Uh, I think taking, I took two classes at UCLA, memoir one and memoir two, and they were incredibly helpful. Uh, and I think in terms of just, in terms of just, you'd get an assignment and you'd have to just, I'm somebody, if I sign up for a class, I'm going to do it. So if I, if I got an assignment, then I would sit down and I would write, you know, and, and in my memoir, one class, one of our assignments that was that we had to write either 30 minutes or a thousand words per day. Um, and so I, I decided to pick a thousand words because I said 30 minutes, I could spend 22 minutes of it not writing. So I'm going to do a thousand words. <laughs> so you didn't one. even have to turn it in, but I just, he wasn't even going to collect it, but he just said, I think, you know, you should, you should do it. And so I just made myself sit down and write a thousand words a day. And a, half of that was trash and half of that got revised and put into the memoir. So I don't know. I think just, just sit down and, you know, even if you do nothing with it, just, just sit down and, and write and definitely consider taking a class if you don't know where to start and, and you can do everything online now. So. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. One of my favorite quotes uh, from Sark, who is a great creativity teacher. Um, and I, I bought a poster from her website. So SRK and it's, it's, um, it's called how to be a happy writer. And I only bought it like a year ago, but I thought it was so cool. I thought, I'm going to stick that on my piano for songwriting. And um, something she wrote, which is so true, she said, resisting writing is far harder than writing. And it's so true. It's like, especially with writing, I find that's something that you can put off. I mean, there are other things I can put off too, but I think it's that pent up energy that you have. So I love this idea of just getting a thousand words down the day, especially when you think that a book you know, 35,000 words, that's 35 days. And you, sure, you want to edit, <laughs> you might want to throw some stuff away. But, but, but it just goes to prove that we can do these things. We just have to have the right will, the right willingness to kind of just do it and get it, get it out. Yeah. I love that you did it when it was so fresh. Yeah. And I, I think the other thing is that I always thought that to be like writers just know how to write. Yeah. Um, and I don't know who gave me this analogy of a violinist doesn't just pick up the violin and play the violin. They practice and it, you know, and to become a writer, you have to actually practice writing. But in my head, I thought writers are just naturally writers. Um, and, you know, once I figured out that a writer is just somebody who actually writes real, you know, I read like Anne Lamont's uh, Bird by Bird, you know, mm -hmm. when she talks about the shitty first draft and, you know, that you just have to sit down and just sit and write and then revise, revise, revise. And really anybody can, can write, but you just have to sit your butt down and do it. So. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So I'm curious, like, what's your, what's your feeling about the year ahead for you? I'm asking you a bit of an intuitive question, so you may not know the answer to this, but I just feel, I mean, obviously you have the book coming out and this is a really important part of your, your being and your work in the world. But I'm curious, just even if it's on a creative level or a spiritual level, not to do with your family, like, what do you feel might be next for you once you're through this book being released into the world? Do you, do you have a sense of anything? Um, I'm not really sure, but I have to say that uh, for the first time in my life, I'm, 
I have a little curiosity about writing fiction, mm. um, which to me, writing fiction has always seemed impossible. You know, I've always, anything I've written has always been personal essay and, and memoir. I've, um, you know, so, but for whatever reason, I've had this curiosity lately about uh, writing fiction. So I think I'm going to take a fiction writing class when things quiet down a little bit, um, just to try it uh, and see. I don't know if it will ever lead anywhere or not, but I I know that I definitely see more of being creative in my future. Mm-hmm. You know, I always, I'm 47. I like, I always said, I'm going to do medicine until I'm 50, and then I'm going to do something totally different. And I actually don't think I'm going to stop doing medicine, but I'm definitely going to bring more creativity into into my life, I think, while continuing to do medicine. Um, Although it's possible that, you know, how my medical practice will shift over the next few years as well. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, yeah, it definitely feels like you've you've kind of hit the green button on like a whole new part of your mission, which is exciting. So, yes. And hey, that class worked last time. So <laughs> if there is a fiction, if UCLA do have a fiction class, then I have no doubt you'll be back on the show in a couple of years with a book to tell us about. Um, it has been really, really lovely talking to you. And, and also, again, I just want to give you a big shout out for this book. And I'll, I have a copy here. Um, this is my advanced copy. And um, by the time this interview airs, the book will have come out. But it's, it's a beautiful, it's beautifully written book. It's a really important book. And it's a really important, timely topic that I think we all need educating about. I certainly know I'm learning a lot. So if, if I may, I just want to... Um, I just want to read this last bit from from the book because I I think it's really, I don't know, for me, even though you're talking about Ava's transition in this, I think it's like a good metaphor for life. The chapter is called Prescribing a New Story. I looked at my reflection in the mirror, trying to see if I still recognized myself. You can handle this. It's just another day. I tried to convince the eyes staring back at me from the mirror. Did my eyes still sing and dance with joy as my late Aunt Shaheen had once said they did? She had been holding my face in between her hands, locking eyes with me in an airport after six years apart. I can still feel her palms on my cheeks. My dark brown eyes maintained their pain and worry, but I looked away. What had been scheduled months in advance seemed to have suddenly snuck up on me. It was May the 2nd, 2018, the day of our first appointment at the Center for Trans Youth Health and Development at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, just less than a year since that first call in Thailand to discuss Ava's medical transition. I wasn't ready, but I knew I might never be. I had to remind myself that what mattered was not my readiness, but Ava's body, which was getting more masculinized each day by testosterone that had no respect for anyone's timeline. Prescribing a new story and just, you know, are any of us ever ready? You can handle this. It's just another day. I mean, that that to me is why it's such an evolutionary journey. And um, yeah, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. And I wish you great success with Found in Transition. And it was lovely to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely having this conversation with you. And uh, hopefully we'll meet in person one day. (laughs) I really hope we can. Yeah, yeah.
Take care. Lots of love. Thank you, Paria. And you can find more about Paria's work and the book at pariahasuri.com. She has a wonderful website with articles and links to her Instagram and everything that she's doing. So if you check out her website, check out the book, and we will put all the links as ever underneath in the show notes. Thanks, Paria. Thank you. You have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com. In 2018, I launched a course called Empaths vs. Narcissists, a power dynamic and how to recover from it. It's a video course and it's designed to support you to recover from any kind of relationship where you have given your power away. It's interesting because narcissism has been this big topic and I think it's very easy for any of us to just point the finger and label people. And it's also very complicated. You know, at any particular moment, we can all have narcissistic tendencies or behave empathically. Why I created this course is time and time again, I was meeting and working with so many people who had got themselves quite entangled into this unhealthy dynamic and had come out of it, didn't know how to recover from it, didn't quite know what had happened to them, but also didn't know what to rebuild in themselves in order to avoid walking back into it in the future. And I certainly had my own experiences around this. So the course is born of personal experience, my experience of working with one-on-one clients and groups around the world for several years on this topic. And it's delivered via video, audio, worksheets. And for 2020, we are launching again this fall in September. And it will be open for just over a month that you can enroll because we like to support the course live. So as each piece is delivered over the two months, me and my team can support you as you go through the process. There are also some bonus interviews that I'm adding this year with people who have particular expertise and experience around this dynamic. It's the most healing course that I offer and have offered, and it has been very acclaimed by the students who have gone through it so far. So we're really looking forward to opening the doors again. It's a touchy subject, you know, it's not the most fun thing to, to, to look at or to visit in yourself, but the results can be profound when you figure out how you got yourself into giving your power away in the first place, how to recover from the fact that you did it, and then how to avoid doing it again in the future. So I hope you'll join us for Empaths vs. Narcissists 2020. You can visit empathsversusnarcissists.com to find out more details about the full course.